turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to Matthew chapter 3. You know, there's a lot of talk in our day of this conversation about the goat. I don't, I don't mean a farming goat, but who's the goat? And some of you know what this means, some of you may not. Goat refers to greatest of all time. Who is the greatest of all time in any given area? So in the sports world, there's a, a lot of debate on that. You see it in pretty much every every sport and you you have questions of who who is the what team was the goat what coach is the goat what player is the goat and one thing I found is there's rarely consensus on this you know um, that one of the most common debates you have in in our day really in the sports world is the goat basketball player and, and a lot of you know that the big question is is it LeBron or is it Michael Jordan and it's obviously Michael Jordan um, but the, the debate rages, and typically people who are around my age or maybe a little older are going to say Michael Jordan, and these dear souls in the front think LeBron is, um, and they just don't know that. But the debate rages. Goat, who's the goat? Who's the goat? Another thing I've found is that I tend to listen more in that conversation to someone who knows what they're talking about, right? Someone who has been around that arena. So I'm not going to really have a lot to share about the baseball player who is the GOAT or the baseball coach who is the GOAT. I, I just I enjoy watching baseball at times, but that's not something I know a lot about. But if a baseball player, a major league player, comes and looks at me and says, he's the GOAT, then I listen to him as opposed to myself or one of you who may know nothing about baseball, Right? The person who speaks into that, who is informed, who knows, carries a little more weight in the conversation. So I was thinking about that this week. And here's a question. What if Jesus spoke into the goat conversation? What if Jesus said, this is the goat? What would we do then? Well, as you might have guessed, Matthew, or Jesus did speak into the goat conversation. In Matthew eleven eleven. Jesus made the statement, he said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. When, when Jesus is carrying out his ministry, he looks out and he says, John the Baptist is the goat. To this point, no one has arisen born of women who is greater than him. That means that he is greater than Noah. Jesus said he was greater than Abraham, greater than Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, you name it. At that time, Jesus says no one greater has come about than John the Baptist. He is the goat. And so today we turn to, to Matthew 3 and we, we read in Matthew's account of John the Baptist as he prepares the way for the Messiah. All of the Gospels talk about John the Baptist. Mark's Gospel is the shortest account of John's ministry. Luke's Gospel has the most detailed account of John's ministry. And then when you go over to the Gospel of John, his is the most theological account of John the Baptist's ministry. It's actually held in several chapters, chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, and then 19 to 34, and then later in chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. So we have a lot of information about John, and here in John 3, or Matthew 3, 1 through 12, we hear Matthew's account of John's ministry. Let's read the word of the Lord together. Matthew testifies, he says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And we, we read this passage. I, I, I want us to kind of walk through the first segment of it and, and look at four things that we learn about John. There's four things we see right away that we learn about John, the first of which is in verse 1. We learn what John's task was. John's task was that of preaching. We learn, learn just a simple statement. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching. That's what he was about. That's what he was doing. That's what he was tasked with, was to, to preach, to proclaim, to herald. This is a, a distinctive of Orthodox Christianity. It's something that we do, as you know, because you're listening to preaching, right? It's something we do. It's what we're about. We come and we proclaim the message of our God. So, so that's what that word is. That word preach is simply uh, the idea of making known a message that is given to someone by authority. And that individual is then a herald or a messenger of what he is sent to proclaim. It isn't some free composition or teaching of what the individual just wants to say or something that, that he's created. So it's something that when we come and, and you see week in and week out and we stand in this pulpit... This is not something where we come to this time, we go, you know, we want to teach you something that, that we've thought deeply about. We want to just teach you kind of our idea or our philosophy, and, and we want to impart that to you. No, our task when we stand in this pulpit is to deliver the Word of God. We are to proclaim, we are to herald, we are to come as messengers of what the Word of God says. The Word of God has authority over anyone who stands in this pulpit. And so myself and any others who come here should submit to the authority of God's Word and proclaim the authority of God's Word and the truth of God's Word as a preacher. John was tasked with the, the, the job of proclaiming, preaching, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so he came and his task was indeed preaching. The second thing we see about John is we see what his message was. His message, I just alluded to it, was, was what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His call was repentance, right? That was the call. The reason for that call is that a new day had arrived. The kingdom of heaven was at hand. This is the same exact message that Jesus would preach. In, in, in Matthew four seventeen. when Jesus starts his ministry, we see the same exact statement, the same thing. Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
in Matthew 6.12 when he sends the disciples out to the surrounding towns to preach and to, to tell of, of, of the coming of the Messiah. It says that they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. It, it was the theme of the, the preaching of the apostles. We see an example of that in Acts 2.38 where we read, Repent and be, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repentance is a vital theme of preaching. And we'll come back to that in a moment. The third thing that we learn about John is we learn his role. We see his role in verses 3 through 4. We, we learn that this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. So the, so the role of John was what? He was a prophet. John fulfilled prophecy. He came in fulfillment of prophecy. Remember, we're going to continue to see this, where Matthew continues to draw us back to the Old Testament to, to teach us and to remind us that God's plan continues to be uh, unfolded. God's plan continues to be carried out. And here in the coming of John, this is part of God's plan. Isaiah had said that one would come to prepare the way. In Isaiah 40, uh, verses 3 through 5, we read that. You can just listen. You don't have to turn there. But in, in Isaiah 40, it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We read later in Malachi, Isaiah was not the only prophet who spoke of John the Baptist. In Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, we read, "Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming," says the Lord of hosts. Later, Malachi says in chapter 4 verses 5 through 6, he says, "Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes." And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Jesus, in Matthew eleven fourteen, said John was indeed Elijah. That's who he was. And so John comes in fulfillment of prophecy as a prophet. 400 years of silence had come between the last words of Malachi until the moment that John comes on the scene and declares that the time is at hand. Prepare the way of the Lord. John was a prophet declaring that the Messiah had come. He was the forerunner of Christ. And we read that his role was to proclaim the great revelation of God's glory that we beheld in Christ. He was coming to proclaim that God is revealing himself. In John 1, 14 to 18, we read this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side he has made him known. He's made him known. In John 1.31, John the Baptist declares that he was baptizing with water so that he might reveal Christ. 
John's purpose. His, his purpose was to prepare the way to reveal the glory of the Lord. When Christ comes, he comes in the flesh, and we have seen his glory. John bears witness of him. He was a prophet, a preacher, a messenger who declared the glory of God. The fourth thing we learn about John is in verses 5 through 6. Verses 5 through 6, we learn of John's influence. We learn of his influence. Look at, look at what it says. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, this is not a day of internet. You know this. This isn't a day where somebody tweets out and it gets retweeted and retweeted and retweeted and everybody just like, boom, in a matter of minutes knows what's going on. No, this is a day where messages travel by word of mouth. Word of mouth, And people hear and they, they hear what's going on and they, people are talking about it. They're saying, hey, have you heard what's going on? Have you heard about this John? You've got to hear his message. His message was gripping people and people were coming from all around to hear him. Our day is a day filled with influencers. Do you, you understand this terminology? Influencers, this is an official title now in our day. People, both from teenagers all the way up to adults, literally make millions of dollars by tweeting out influential tweets. They, they've gained millions of followers, millions upon millions of followers. And there are, there's a list. You can look this up. There's a list of people. There are individuals, I think, um, I think The Rock, Dwayne, I can't remember his last name, uh, but The Rock, you guys know The Rock, right? I think he makes over a million dollars for something he tweets out. Because he is an influencer. An influencer. Just because he has a following. And he does indeed influence culture. He influences ideas. He influences thoughts. Well, John the Baptist would be the greatest influencer of his time. In John 3, 25, we even see that, that John had his own following of disciples. That, that people followed him just like Jesus. And, and some people speculate that John probably had more of a following than Jesus did. The, the historian Josephus, who, who began as a Pharisee and then came to serve in, in the Roman army and became an informant to the Romans, and, and some, some Jews would see him as somewhat of a sellout, but Josephus comes back and he writes his antiquities and, and, and the most vast account of, of Jewish history we have at that time, and, and he writes of John's influence. Listen to what he writes. He says, Now when others came in crowds about him, talking about John, they were greatly moved by hearing his words. Herod, who feared lest the great influence that John had over the people might be put into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything that he should advise. John had great influence. What John said, people listened to. He had an impacting voice. He had a message that gripped the people. But here's the question. What did he do with that influence? What did he do with that voice? You see, we need to ask that question because we need to see what John does with that, and we need to ask that same question of ourselves. We need to ask that same question. What do we do with our voice? What do we do with the influence that we have? You understand that you have a circle of influence in your life. There are people in your life who God has given you influence over. For some in here, that may be a kind of a tight circle, a, a small circle. It could be a, a circle of little people in your living room, right? Some of you in here have a very big circle of influence. 
you come in contact with many, many people throughout the week. And there are a lot of people who hear your words. What are you doing with the influence that God has given you? What did John do with the influence and voice that God gave him? The first thing he did is that he called people to genuine repentance. To genuine repentance. Underline, mark, capitalize, whatever you want to do. Genuine repentance. You see in verses 7 through 10 of of Matthew 3 that, that John is not concerned with just calling people to repentance and they just kind of feel sorry about it and go, okay, great, and boom, let's get moving. No, he's concerned with genuine repentance, biblical repentance, repentance that results in in action, repentance that results in earnestness. Let's look at verses 7 through 10. It says, He saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, and he said to them, You brood of vipers. (laughs) You brood of vipers. Now, in Luke, he says, Luke says that actually a lot of people were coming, and when he sees the people, he does the same thing. Certainly the, the Pharisees and Sadducees are included in that group, but he sees these religious leaders, these religious influencers. He sees them coming, and he looks at them, and he says, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? But, what does he say? But, verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He rebukes the people. He rebukes them. Josephus, again, I found it interesting just studying what he had written about John this week. I found it interesting what he says about John and his call. He says that, that John was a good man who commanded the, fair, or the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism. He called the people to genuinely follow God, to live in righteousness towards one another, to live in piety towards God. He calls them to this. And so in, in Matthew 3, 8, when he sees that, that the Pharisees are coming and he sees a lack of genuine repentance, he calls them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. They needed to hear and be confronted with a call to repentance. We need the same in our day. We need the same. The, the late pastor J.C. Ryle said this. He said, this is just the teaching that we all need. We are naturally dead and blind and asleep to spiritual things. We are ready to content ourselves with a mere formal religion and to flatter ourselves that if we go to church, we shall be saved. We need to be told that except we repent and are converted, we shall perish. Ryle looked at this passage and he looked at the message he heard the message of john he said we need to hear the same thing we need to be confronted with the call to genuine god honoring god exalting life-changing repentance I, i fear that in our day we don't really have a good understanding of repentance have you ever had someone come to you and they're sorrowful and they're they feel bad about something, they apologize about it, they show remorse about something they've done to wrong you, and then it doesn't change. It's just the same thing. And in a matter of a week or two weeks, three weeks, they're doing the same exact thing. That they, they felt bad about it, but nothing changed. That's not genuine repentance. Gen- genuine repentance is turning around is is turning the opposite direction is taking one's entire life and taking it and turning from this direction and heading this direction it includes your thinking your actions your words it is indeed often accompanied with feelings of sorrow and grief but it is a life change something is different it's not mere words it's not mere feelings it results in a life change of your thinking actions and words So how do we discern? Let me give you 
three, to, three ways that you know genuine repentance. Three ways that you can see that repentance is genuine. Here's the first one. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians 7 if you want to flip over there. Genuine repentance first is more than a feeling. Genuine repentance is more than a feeling. Grief and sorrow do not equal repentance. It's more than just say, feeling bad about something and saying, oh, I'm sorry. It's more than that. Genuine repentance is described by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. Paul, Paul writes, he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. Paul, Paul understands the weight of his letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth. And he continues, he says, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Paul says that, that grief was not equal to repentance, but grief, godly grief, led to repentance it resulted in repentance godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret worldly grief just produces death paul says why it's just a feeling it's just i just feel bad about it and then i move on it doesn't lead to repentance it doesn't lead to genuine change so first genuine repentance is more than a feeling more than a feeling second genuine repentance results in earnestness it results in earnestness. We see that in verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 7. That, that real repentance does not stop with feelings. Instead, it results in an earnest desire to pursue something different than before. Something different than before. I looked up in, in Webster's Dictionary, the 1828 edition. If you've never looked at that, you should take a look at it sometime. It, it, it's beautiful in how he describes words. Our dictionary now, they, just, they took out so many things about what words mean. And so the weight of meaning described in Webster's 1828 is just a beautiful picture of the English language. He, he describes it there. He describes earnestness as an ardor or zeal in the pursuit of anything. It is an eagerness, an animated desire, anxious care, an intenseness of desire, a fixed desire or attention, a seriousness. That's how he describes earnestness. Do, do you sense the... The weight of that, the, the weight of that word. And, and Paul talks about repentance producing earnestness. That, that it went, godly grief led to godly repentance that produced this earnestness within them. It, it means that, that there is evidence of serious zeal for the Lord. When we think about this producing of earnestness, it, it means that, that when we think about repenting from, from our former way of life, repenting from a sinful life that we are pursuing ourselves instead of pursuing the Lord, we repent and we turn to faith in Christ. It means that our growth in Christ is something that we become very serious about. That we don't just say, oh, I'm a Christian, and then there's nothing different. No, when we pursue Christ, we repent and we turn to Him in faith, then we are serious about our growth in Christ. It means that holy living is something we're serious about. That we hear Jesus' words, that, that we are to be holy for He is holy. We hear that and we pursue Him because we are serious about Him. It means that, that we have an animated desire to worship God. 
We have an eagerness to serve Him. We want to serve Him. We want to make Him known. Why? Because there is an earnestness that we have, have as a result of repenting, as a result of drawing near to the Lord. So genuine repentance results in earnestness. And third, genuine repentance produces fruit. Genuine repentance produces fruit. We see that in, in verse 8. The, the problem that John had with the leaders was what? They weren't bearing fruit. He said, bear fruit that keeps with repentance. Bear fruit. If, if, fruit, if, if, if repentance is genuine, then there should be fruit from it. But apparently, they were presuming upon their heritage. He says, do not presume to say to yourselves what? We have Abraham as our father. Have you seen our lineage? Do you know who we are? We're Jews. John says, don't presume upon that. Don't presume upon your heritage. Don't be settled in your religion. Don't rest in your religiosity. Repent and bear fruit of repentance. In verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 7, again, that earnestness. He says that godly sorrow produced in you what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. There is obvious fruit in their lives. In, in Luke chapter 3, said this is a parallel text of, of John the Baptist, but over in Luke, you remember I said that Luke is the most detailed account of John the Baptist? So, so Luke kind of magnifies what's going on. In, in Luke 3, 10 to 14, after he says this, after he calls them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, the crowds, in verse 10, it says the crowds asked him, what, what then shall we do? And John doesn't say, well, just keep feeling bad about it. <laughs> if you just cry, you'll be good to go. He doesn't say that. He says, he answered them, in verse 11 of Luke 3, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, What, what do we do? And he said to them, Do not exhort or extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. There, there is fruit. There is evidence of repentance we can see repentance we can see it you, you probably remember john 15 verses 1 through 5 where where jesus talks about the fact that he is the vine and we are the branches in verse 5 of john 15 he says i am the vine you are the branches right he who abides in me will what will bear much fruit we are to be fruit bearing people genuine repentance produces fruit it produces evidence we see it we see it so that's the first thing john does he calls people to repentance the, the second thing john does to use his influence and his voice in a way that glorifies god is, is simply in verse 11 through 12 john magnified christ john magnified christ I was, I was looking at this whole idea of influencers in our culture, and, and one artic article I came across was entitled 15 Traits That Set Influential People Apart. And it listed 15 traits that, that allows you to be influential in our culture. And one of them listed was this, that, is that an influencer focuses on his or her strengths, but also understands his or her weaknesses. We understand our weaknesses. Well, John, John apparently was a very strong preacher. 
We have testimony from Josephus. We have testimony from Matthew and the other gospel writers that, that people were coming to, to him from all across the land. He was an influential and an effective preacher. But he knew his weakness. What was his weakness? His weakness was that he could proclaim the coming of the Messiah, but he was not the Messiah. He could call them to repent of their sins, but he could not cleanse them of their sins. He could not save them from their sins. He knew that the Lamb of God was coming, but he knew that he was not the Lamb of God. John knew that Jesus was mightier than him. And this is the beauty of John's ministry. It's the beauty of John's influence is that he sought to magnify Christ. This is what we started with today, John, or Psalm 34.3. Magnify the Lord with me. Come, let us exalt his name forever. This is what John was saying. Magnify Christ. I'm going to magnify Christ. He lived with a singular desire and longing and purpose to point others to Christ, to influence others for the sake of Christ. We see that because in, in John 1, 29, he looks and, and Jesus comes on the scene. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But do you know he repeats that a few verses later in verse 35 to 37? In that moment, he looks out. It's the next day and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. And he tells his disciples about him. And you know what? The result of that is that they follow Jesus. They follow Jesus. We see that again in John 3. When, when John talks and his disciples come to him, they ask him about Jesus. And John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And he sends his followers to follow Christ. Why? Because he was magnifying Christ. People flocked to John. People responded to John. People were influenced by John. But you know what? John's message could be summed up in five words. In five words of what he says in verse 11 of chapter 3 of Matthew. He says, but he who is coming. But he who is coming. Everybody can look to John. They can be influenced by John. They can love and long to hear John. And John's message and theme was, oh, but he who is coming. He was ever pointing to Christ. He who is coming. You and I have the opportunity to say he who came. He who came. John was saying, oh, but he who is coming. He pointed to the people to Christ. He pointed them first to Christ's supremacy. Verse 11, he who is coming after me is mightier than I. John 3, 30, he must increase, I must decrease. John realized that he was a limited preacher who served a limitless God. He realized that he was a needy man who served a sovereign God. He realized that he was a weak preacher that served a mighty God. He was a great influencer, but he did not even count himself worthy of untying and carrying Jesus' sandals. The most menial of, of tasks of his day, he says, I cannot do it. You may think I'm great, John says. You may love to hear my message, but I want you to know that I serve one who is much mightier than I. I serve one who is greater, and he who is to come is great. He is the Lamb of God. We have this opportunity every day. You realize that. You have this opportunity every day. To take a compliment or, or to take somebody who would want to look to you and, and you would have opportunities to draw people's attention to how great of a person I am, how good I am at this, how smart I am with this, and, and say, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. Or you can turn that around and say, I want you to know how great and awesome my God is. I want to exalt Christ. I want to lift high the name of Christ. I want to make him greater. Behold the one who came. Who made me all that I am. We have that opportunity every day. John pointed people to Jesus' work. 
So he magnified Christ by pointing to Jesus' supremacy. He magnified Christ by pointing to Jesus' work, the work that he would do. John said, I baptize you with the baptism of repentance, but the one who will come, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John knew he could only call the people to, to repent, but he knew Jesus would come and cleanse them with fire and give them the Holy Spirit. Jesus would come and, and cleanse them, purify them. John's baptism might be some type of ritual affair, but Jesus' baptism was one of the Holy Spirit bringing the Spirit of God, the presence of God into the people's lives. You can do great things for people. I can do great things for people, but I can't change a person's life. I can't change them from being one who will spend eternity in hell, what Jesus says, or what John writes um, in Matthew 4.12, that the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. I can't take someone from that being the result of their eternity to being in the presence of God Almighty. I can't do that. Only Christ can do that. We can't change a person's life. But we do know the one who can. We know the one who can change people's lives. We know the one who has said, let your good deeds be known before men. Let them shine before men so that people might see them and do what? Glorify our God in heaven. That's the opportunity we have. That's the opportunity we have. And John, finally, he pointed to Jesus' future judgment. He pointed to the fact that Jesus was coming. He was bold with the people. (laughs) He didn't mince words. He called the Jews to repent. They had been used to seeing Gentiles called to be baptized, to be proselytized, to enter into being able to take part in some of the Jewish festivities. John wasn't calling, calling Jewish or um, Gentiles to be baptized. John was calling the Jews to be baptized. And John was declaring that this baptism, this repentance must bear fruit. He was confronting them in their religiosity. He was confronting them in their vain religion. He warns them that Jesus would come and he would come in judgment and his judgment was sure. He didn't present this little meek and mild Jesus who just, you sit on your dash and you wear his t-shirt and all these things. John presents the Christ who is coming in judgment. His winnowing fork, he says in verse 12, is in hand and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It's the picture of in the harvest when they would take and, and, and all the grain was there, the, the weed, and they would, they would take it up on a windy day and they would take their winnowing fork, they would throw it up in the air and the grain would fall to the ground and the wind would carry the chaff to the side. And they would do this over and over and over again until just the grain remained and the grain would be taken into the barn and the chaff would be burnt. And John says, listen, you need to know that this one I'm preparing you for is coming and he is coming. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but you also need to know that he is coming and his winnowing fork is in hand. And he will indeed separate the grain from the chaff. You can jot down in your notes and look ahead. Matthew 13, 24 to 30, even into 43. Jesus warns of the day when the wheat and the weeds will be separated. There will be a day of judgment. A day of judgment. So with John, we have the opportunity. John says, but he who is coming. We have the opportunity to say, but he who came. But we also must say, he who will one day come again. John's sole intent was to magnify Christ. His sole focus was to exalt God. 
we have that same responsibility to call people to repentance, to magnify God, to exalt His name. The one that Jesus called the goat testified to the fact that one greater than Himself was coming. Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray.